Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Welcome back to another episode of the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm CJ Gustafson here with the one and only FPNA guy, Paul Barnhurst. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing great. Excited to be here. Excited to spend some time with you, CJ. It's always fun to jam out with a good buddy like you. Paul, I, I know you have uh, now two podcasts that are pretty big in the U.S., but I bet I bet you never thought you'd be on the number three business podcast within the management category in Zambia, did you? You know, I, I did not, although if, in case you were wondering, one of my podcasts has been number three in the last month in Zambia. I think we even hit number one. We're, we're cornering the market. If we collaborate, we can go after Luxembourg next, okay? I was thinking, actually, maybe we went after, what was I think, Algeria. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we're climbing the rankings together. Paul's been a, a buddy of mine, a, a bit of a mentor of sorts for me as as I've gone into, you know, the, the creator world. He's kind of the FP&A category pirate here. So he's he's cornered this part of the market <laughs> and knows a lot about, um, you know, professional development within FP&A on your way to become a CFO and also the tool stack there. So what I wanted to start with today, Paul, is just kind of reflecting on the FP&A function within, um, you know, corporate finance. How many FP&A professionals do you think there are in the world now? Like if you just had the ballpark it. So I, I saw a number today that put finance, which we count accounting globally at about 8 million. Wow. Yeah, I think it was 7.8 was their estimate. I think it's a little high, but that was one estimate they had. You know, so let's just say maybe 5% of that is FP&A maybe a little bit more but it's somewhere maybe half a million that's a pretty large audience i mean that's it's it's not just the number of people in the space now but it's the number of tools as well if you had to estimate how many tools do you think there are out there for fpna professionals today yeah so let's just talk planning tools let's ignore you know kind of those that may just do reporting or other things because there are some that are head count or best of breed just planning tools it's around a hundred and 50 to 200 would be my guess. It's really blown up. And what's like the first FP&A tool you remember back in the day? So the first one I used was TM1. Now it's called IBM Planning and Analytics is what they call it, but it's basically TM1. It used to be called Cognos is another name some people may recognize it by. I have a theory that IBM was like mysteriously at the start of every tool stack that evolves. <laughs> well, given how big they were and how much they were involved early in the PC. Yes, at some point in some way, right? They had their own operating system. They had their own spreadsheet. One of the first planning tools. I'm guessing we could find a link, whether it was someone who worked at IBM that started the new company or IBM directly. We could probably link most software categories back to IBM. Yeah, they, they say no CFOs ever got fired for buying IBM. Yes, that's what we, I've heard that one as well. No, no CFO gets fired for implementing you know, like basically Oracle, IBM, SAP. Those are like the big, huge safe bets, so to speak. And so, okay, IBM, the Illuminati of the uh, CFO tool stack, you know, pulling all the strings behind the scenes. Uh, what what ERPs was that going into? E yes, they, they had a link to ERPs, but they weren't necessarily owned by ERPs. Most of them mm. were started by, like Hyperion was started by somebody else and then bought by Oracle. Like Oracle and SAP, bought planning tools for the most part. I mean, Oracle bought most of the software it has, right? They didn't build. 
but they saw a need in the, okay, there's a CRP out there, there's up this accounting data, but they need a better way to budget and forecast. And so I think IBM, Solver, um, Hyperion, S-Base, you know, there, there are several others that were kind of in that early stage when things just kind of got started of helping build out those tools. I mean, the first FP&A tools, maybe late 70s, early 80s, you know, kind of as the ERPs came about, probably 80s realistically is when you really saw them start. Is that Gen 1 or would you call that Gen 0? I call it Gen 1. I mean, in the sense that, right, those are big, huge tools. Only your largest companies were going to have them, whether it's Gen 0 or Gen 1. They were highly customizable, very expensive to implement. You had to have an army of consultants. Yeah, I can imagine that a lot of them were price prohibitive, just even the implementation cost to, to put it in. And then you had to also have an, an army of people to use it to substantiate the cost. Yeah, I mean, we had, I bet, 10, 15 people globally that just supported the tool at American Express, just TM1, the cubes, and helping design it. Wait, just the tool, Paul? That's bigger than most FP&A teams today. Yeah, but think how big American Express is. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, and so what happened after Gen 1? So th then there's a, a Gen 2 that comes along. Can you describe that? You know, you saw the first tools. You saw the large market. Then what happened is you started to see more of uh, online starting to come about a little bit of cloud. But you started to see tools say, hey, we could take this down market a little bit. We could be faster. That's where your adaptives, your Anaplans, your board, Planful, there's a bunch of them came in. Say kind of in that, you know, 2000, maybe 2005, somewhere there, 2000 to about 2015, that range in there, you saw a lot of tools start to come. And most of those are, are cloud-based now. Still, Some still have an on-prem option, but you know they're almost all cloud-based. And those tools were lower cost. They started to serve, you know, customers down to probably a thousand employees, you know, few month implementation. You might still need somebody to run it, but maybe you can train someone internally versus you know, having to have that expensive consultant, kind of like, you know, Anaplan and Adaptive, say. And so that's what I really think of is, is Gen 2, is they really serve the mid-market and a little bit of the enterprise market. It seems like wherever that boundary stops, there's an opportunity for whoever can develop something to go below it. And is that how we got to Gen 3? So I think there's a couple things that led to Gen 3 or just the explosion in tools over the last seven, eight years. One, cloud, right? We have true SaaS, everything SaaS now, cloud, cost. It is much easier to build something, much easier to scale it, right? You can go anywhere and get the, the data you need for Amazon Warehouse or Azure or wherever the space. And so I think that was part of it. The other thing that drove the Gen 3 is they looked at it and said, okay, there has to be a better way to do this. A lot of people are unhappy with their tools. I mean, if you look out there, data shows, you know, roughly 30% of companies have a tool they use. Of that 30%, maybe 5% are using it for all their forecasting models. They're still maintaining some level of their models in Excel. So everybody's like, okay, the process is broken if I can't just use the tool. And I think that's partly why you saw the proliferation is, you know, because everybody saw it broken. Money was super cheap, which helped as well for a couple of years there, near zero interest rates, right? VCs were handing out money like it was candy for a while. And so I think everybody got in line. So I think there were a number of things that led to that, as well as the fact that you could get the cost down 
where you could serve a small business. I mean, you even have some tools now that focus on companies without a finance staff, you know, to help the CEO. Because, you know, unless you're finance based, the CEO has a hard time with some complex Excel model that somebody built and then gives to them to manage. Yeah. I, I, I've seen the memes online and it's like an Excel workbook and on its back is like the entire U.S. economy and GDP. I think some of that still holds true today. And, you know, mm -hmm. like you were saying, a lot of these tools are, are native to Excel. One of the things you've seen is more tools that have said, look, we get it. Finance, we're going to have to pry Excel out of your cold, dead hands, as the saying goes, right? Yeah. You're not going to give it up. So we're going to put the database and the functionality you need to allow you to scale Excel to serve a bigger customer base. And so we've seen more tools take that. And that works better in the SMB space because if you just use Excel as your calculation engine, there's some audibility, logging, some challenges, you know, some security when you really get up into the enterprise. That's where you see very few large multinational global companies that have a tool that's really based on Excel. Now it may integrate well with Excel, like TM1 does a good job of that, which is a little different because it's just structured differently. They still have its own calculation engine and some things versus some of these smaller tools out there that have really just leaned into Excel or Google. Are the tools that are based in Excel actually better or is it just that people are afraid of giving up a skill set that they've put so much time into learning? You know, so I would say, I wouldn't say they're necessarily better. I think it's a little bit more of the second. I think it's the familiarity and the comfort and the ease. They're easier to implement. They do have some advantages on the training, but they're not necessarily better. I think one key area is one of the biggest advantages you get from going outside of a spreadsheet into a you know, tool that isn't based on Excel or Google Sheets is you get that multi-dimensional modeling, which what that allows you to do is have multiple hierarchies and have the formulas spill throughout. That's really hard to do in a row and column based spreadsheet, like almost like pivot table type where you can forecast in it. And so it allows some things that you just, you really can't do in a spreadsheet. But at the same time, there are really good tools that do use a spreadsheet. So it's not like it's a bad experience at all, that you can get a great tool that's a spreadsheet. Yeah. But there are some things, there are some limitations, I guess is what I'd say. Something else I've kind of observed, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of these new tools that are coming out, they have like a BI flavor to them as well. It's not like mm -hmm. they're just straight up FP&A tools. They're, they're kind of, they're kind of, the lines are getting blurred between like a, a Looker or a Sigma or a traditional BI tool in some ways. They are 100%. And so step back a little further and let's take BI for a minute. Okay. There are several BI tools that companies have said, hey, we're going to build the planning on top of the BI tool, particularly Power BI. Uh, there's one called AimPlan. There's one called Acteris that Microsoft just licensed to use with Dynamics. They're going to make some changes themselves, but they're integrating it with Microsoft Dynamics as a full-scale FP&A platform that's built on top of Power BI. There's several others. There's a Lumel. A de facto planning does it. I think I mentioned aim plan, uh, power on is another. I know of one that's built on click. I know of a couple that are just, they've built them on top of their own proprietary BI tools, one called focus software that we highlighted last year. And so the, the thinking there is where the benefit comes in 
is you have one tool. Your data is all coming from that same source. You don't have an FP&A tool that's pulling data from a bunch of sources and then your data warehouse over here. And so there's some that have said, look, we can make it easy. You can do the planning right in there. The planning can be done multiple different ways, as simple as drag and drop. You write, you can write your data right back to the warehouse as you're doing it. So just create a plan and start entering your numbers where you could see all your visuals and get all the benefit of Power BI and the analytics. So there's a real strong case to be made for, you know, FP&A needs some level of BI as we see by that approach. You're also seeing the FP&A tools, you know, some are saying, hey, we're just going to, we're going to create an FP&A tool, but for reporting, we're going to use BI or they're building their own layer of reporting, right? Because at the end of the day, you need the reporting, you need the dashboarding. So there's definitely overlap. More and more tools are integrating with data warehouses, whether it be Snowflake or, you know, whatever it might be. I see a lot more of the tools doing that because at the end of the day, finance needs access to operational and financial metrics. Who do you think is doing a good job of kind of merging the two worlds of FP&A and BI? You know, I think the Power BI tools are doing a, are doing a good job. They're unique. They're di they take some getting used to because you don't have, you know, uh, as much flexibility as you might get in an FP a purpose built tool, right? They're layering on top of analytics. You know, in addition to that, there's a lot of different approaches. I think uh, Abacom's done a good job of creating its notebook style reporting. I like what they've done. I think Veretto's done some really good things. And I think they're, you know, they're making progress in the reporting area. I think uh, Cube just rolled out some new reporting features. I just saw a demo of them the other day. And so that's an area I think continues to improve, but it's one you gotta be, you know, really on top of it to know, okay, can it meet my needs? Like in the B2B space, Mosaic does a really good job of giving you a ton of metrics right out of the box, right? They give you like 120 metrics out of the box. So they do a good job on the reporting side. Will there become a time you think where you can just buy one tool for both FP&A and BI? Um, yes. I mean, I think you'll need to put an add-on on top of it. There already is some cases where you can do it, like focus software. Yeah. And I, and I asked because as a CFO right now, we're still cutting checks for both, right? Yes. And I think most people are, and there's some inefficiency there. I definitely think there are options out there to, uh, reduce the cost by going with the Power BI and then doing an add-on on top of it or going with a click and an add-on, but there's still two, you're still paying two fees. Yeah. You might just not be paying as much. I do think we'll eventually get there. How soon? It'll be interesting to see. I'm not sure, right? Because nobody wants to give up the, the gravy train of getting to uh, having two products that they can sell. And, and it's hard, right? If you think about it, like a CRM. Imagine trying to implement a CRM and an ERP or you know, different things. It's There are different purpose to each of them. And anytime you start combining, you'll lose some of that best of breed. Yeah. The likes of uh, the, the likes of Atoma Bravo, whose uh, bread and butter is predicated on being able to cobble together all these tools and, and sell you all of them. Is, uh... They own Anaplan. Yeah. They own what? See, Coupa. What else do they have? Coupa, Anaplan, and uh, about 17 other things. <laughs> Let's get into the why this matters. So traditionally, a CFO's role, maybe 10 years ago was checks and balances, governance, heavy accounting focus. We've seen a shift recently to more of a chief performance officer type role. Do you think that these tools are, are partially behind that movement? 
Um, I think these tools have come about as part of that movement than necessarily being behind it. I think that's a lot of what's really driving so many tools to come out there is they recognize the importance of collaboration, scenario planning, really being able to build uh, tools that can be used across the business. I mean, that's really the holy grail. And I think it's still an area that we have a ton of room to grow in. Most planning tools are not being used by the business, right? It's just finance entering in them. Even though a lot of them now are trying to build themselves in such a way to make it easy for the business to enter data, it's still a real challenge. And so I think the tools are uh, you know, trying to push it, but I think it really kind of came about without the tools, if that makes sense. Yeah, I like how I was maybe putting the cart before the horse. It's like the demands of the office of the CFO have scaled and so the tools have to come around to that. I, I do think it's more of that. I think the, the, the role has scaled and become more important, especially since COVID, but in the last 10, 15 years in general. And I think the tools are trying to keep up to allow you know, CFO, FP&A to do all the things that are being asked of them. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. The most tactical example I can think of is trying to calculate uh, CAC, customer acquisition cost, CAC payback, or LTV, lifetime value to CAC. Those used to be an absolute beast to try to calculate, even with a system. I'd always end up having an Excel workbook to the side, and then I'm combining mm -hmm. stuff from the HRIS, from NetSuite, from all over the place, from Salesforce. And now um, you can log in and basically check your CAC payback period on a weekly basis if you want. Yeah, they've definitely done a much better job when they're in, integrating all those systems to, you know, come up with a way to show that regularly. The real challenge isn't so much showing it, it's making sure you can get everybody on board and make sure they're aligned with the definition, right? That's often the challenge and making sure your data is clean. Yeah. And in terms of definitions, that's something I've always struggled with, especially getting like the people in the sales ops org to agree to my definitions within FP&A. <laughs> <laughs> Have you run into that problem in the past? Oh, yeah, 100%. I remember you know, before I uh, started my own business, my last role, I it was called Director of Finance, Sales Operations, and Analytics. And really what it was about is we were trying to convert the company to much more of a SaaS-based company. And my job was trying to help fix the reporting, getting everybody aligned. And I can remember sending out emails to the CFO, the CRO, the head of analytics on okay, let's agree what ACV is. Let's agree what a booking is. And just trying to get everybody aligned on those simple definitions was a challenge. They had brought in a consultant to do a big project to try to figure out what their churn was. And I was supposed to come in and operationalize that process. And it was a huge challenge because we had a mix of quasi subscription, subscription, and some one-time stuff. And they wanted it all to be calculated. And it was a real challenge. So I can relate. It was a brain buster of sorts. The subscription element is, is pretty well known. What's coming up is I feel like a lot of the usage-based pricing and some mm -hmm. of the newer tools that are coming out, I'm, I'm assuming, are, are getting a lot better at forecasting for that. Would, would that be accurate? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I think usage-based is still hard because every company is so different, right? And so it's real, still a little bit of a what I would call um, a custom build. If you're straight SaaS, where it's just a monthly subscription, that's really easy to build and everybody to use a similar template. At the end of the day, usage is some some volume times some price. But you know, sometimes you have a flat amount or usage is up to a certain amount and beyond that. So I still think it's a little bit of a challenge, 
but they're definitely getting better. No question. I think you're seeing more ways that you can use machine learning and other things to help with that. Like I saw one tool the other day that, you know, it's doing all the waterfall for you. It was an e-commerce, so it wasn't SaaS, but it had built the waterfall of every single cohort of your customers and what that would look like over time. And, you know, it was a really, really nice way to kind of lay it out and be able to see it all. And they were using machine learning to predict what that'd be and they'd update it every month. That's pretty cool. And I'm seeing a lot of other tools come out that tag on like, um, you know, for tax, for, for sales tax specifically, for headcount budgeting and all these other modules. I've seen some of the market maps that you've made. If, um, you know, if you were consulting me and I'm a CFO who's like overwhelmed with how many different tools he could buy here, I feel like a lot of CFOs are going into this with annual planning season. What tools should I expect to pay for next year? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing I always advise is one, is your data, is your house in order? You want your data in order before you put in a tool. Do you have good processes before you put in a tool? Because there's two things I like to say. The first is old processes plus expensive new technology equals broken, expensive old processes. That's a soundbite right there, producer Nancy. We're going to cut that one. That's good. And I got that one from Hasser Consulting. That's a guy there. He shared that and it just stuck with me. I love that because it's so true. You first need to look at your processes. And then the second thing I like to say, people, processes, and then technology. Technology is just an enabler. If you're looking for technology to solve your problem, then don't buy it. You're wasting your money. If you're looking for it to help automate and streamline processes and make your people more effective, then by all means, look at technology, but don't look at it to fix your problems because it's not going to. And so that's the first advice I give. The second is what I ask people is, all right, what are you looking for a planning tool? You need to list what's important to you. I like to think of it in kind of four pillars. Before I get into pillars, I like to segment the market and ask somebody, okay, do you want to stay in a spreadsheet? Is that really important to you? It's like a decision tree. Choose your own adventure here. Yep. So it's kind of like, okay, what size are you? You're small, mid, enterprise, and where are you going over the next few years? So first, try to get an idea of how scalable of a solution do you need? Are you good with an SMB that maybe won't scale? Do you need something that's really going to scale to be huge? Because that will limit the data set. Then there's the question of, do you want something, I look at it as an access, do you want something that is spreadsheet native, a data rails, a cube, uh, a left, on plan, there are others that highly integrate with the spreadsheet. Or do you want something on the other end that's basically a replacement? They're trying to say, hey, don't use your spreadsheet. You know, Pigment, Anaplan, Causal are examples of that. There's others, Quantrix is another one. And then you have the web apps. I mean, they're really all web apps, but you have the ones that integrate at some level with spreadsheets from low integration to high integration. And so I like to ask people, okay, where do you wanna be? What ERP are you using? Are you using a cloud-based? Or are you using you know, something on-prem? If you're using something on-prem, I would go, go an older generation just because they've had more time to develop a lot of those custom uh, you know, AI, P, APIs or different ways to integrate your data, whatever it may be. They're going to be more comfortable with that. You're going to pay more, but they're going to be more comfortable. So really, it comes down to a few different questions. What do you think you want? Where you're going? What's the rest of your tech stack like? And that will help you narrow down the tools. From there, I tell people, okay, when you're looking at a planning tool, I like to break it into call it five segments. I used to say four. 
you, you have the data model. Okay, how many dimensions can they bring in all my data? Can they bring it in at a transactional level? Like some tools have a limit on how many dimensions they can handle, particularly some of the smaller tools, because usually you don't need as many. So you got to think about that. Are they going to be able to bring in the geography and the vendor and the customer level? Or am I going to run into some issues? And so that's kind of your data model. And then from there, you have your modeling. How well do they do on modeling? How easy are their formulas to learn? Is it something where I'm going to need a consultant every time I change a formula? Or can I do it on my own? So that kind of low code, no code. How, how well does it do at creating scenarios? What if? From there, it's, okay, how good is its reporting? Right? Can it handle my reporting? And then the last level is, can it give me the workflow and collaboration I need? And within all that, you need to now think about how are they leveraging or how are they thinking about AI? That right there, folks, was the definition of letting the man cook. Give him the ball and see what he does. So we're sitting here 10 years from now, Paul. What do you think this finance tech stack is going to look like? Or, or me? <laughs> Am I still going to be in Excel? I think that's what I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> um, some level of companies will still be in Excel, no question. How many? It will be less than 70. We're seeing it come down a little bit. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's 50. But what I'll say, one thing I think we're heading toward is right now each tool is building all these connectors. Now, often they're going out and using a third party to help. So they're not necessarily building all of them. Sometimes they're just using another company that's built a bunch of connectors to, like, example, all the HR systems. You usually use just one third party that connects to 50 of them. But I think what you're going to see, instead of the FPA tool having to integrate all that, you're eventually going to see all that data go into one tool, just a data connection layer, and they're going to have to write the logic to pull it all from that. So I think that's one of the big changes you'll see in the next 10 years, which will allow greater integration of BI and FP&A, is I think you're going to see less and less of that need of FP&A tools to have 300 connectors to all these different data sources so they can meet everybody's needs. I think they'll figure out how that sits on its own and the FP&A tool just connects into that source. It's it's funny you're talking about connections. I was talking with my chief product officer the other day, and he said, CJ, I would wager that billions of hours of integration efforts across the world have been dedicated to building a QuickBooks integration because you're not you're not a true software until you integrate with QuickBooks. And when he <laughs> said that, it kind of hit me. Like I feel like every single app out there integrates to QuickBooks now. Yeah, so when people ask me about an FP&A tool, I get talking to them and someone was asking me, what integration should I build first? I'm like, just do QuickBooks and Xero. Mm. And they were going to have all these others. I'm like, don't even do those right now. They're less than 5% of your market for who you're targeting. What do you think of this uh, whole quote-unquote AI revolution we're seeing here? Uh, you know, so one, on a personal level, I think it's great. I, I'm much more efficient with it. I use it pretty regularly on different things, whether it be summarizing a podcast transcript, whether it be helping create data for a course I'm doing, it's great for dummy data, whether it be asking about a metric or giving me some ideas for an article. I think the first thing I will say is everybody should be experimenting with it. I think you're, so, you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not preparing for it. Two, I think there are still some things we need to figure out before we really see mass adoption at the enterprise level. So I think there's a little bit of people getting overly excited. And I think some of that is cost, bandwidth, right? You think of the internet. It took a while till there was bandwidth for everybody to do whatever they wanted on the internet. And I think we'll see some of those same challenges around hardware, right? I mean, what's a cost? ChatGPT, is it like a million dollars a day or something to run all their servers or some crazy? It's pretty wild. It's astronomical, right? 
Yeah. And so now take that and multiply that if every company wants to do that. So I think AI will help revolutionize the way we work and it will make us more productive. But I think we just need to be patient. It's going to take a little time for it to work its way through the system, so to speak. Yeah, specifically to the finance space, and someone's probably going to clip this in five years and make me seem like a total jackass. But I, you and I me think, both, it's okay. <laughs> I think this AI's AI's like application so far is kind of bullshit. Um, like I've played around with a couple of them, and it's like, tell me why revenue is up, and it's like revenue is up because sales increased this quarter by five percent. It's like okay, th thanks for that, you know, mind blowing revelation there. And so I think that AI will accelerate, like if, if you look at like what AI has done for software so far, I think like GitHub Copilot's really neat of how it can help write code and stuff. Um, AI has got to find a way within finance to help with forming a PL based on hierarchies and all that stuff, just to be able to go from text, I think, to like output. And I don't think we're truly there yet. Or if, if we are, I haven't seen it. And uh, I'm, I'm excited for it to eventually get there. You know, I, I've seen a few pretty good ones out there. I think it's getting better, but yes, there's a couple challenges. One, language learning models are not great with numbers. Oh, say, say more about that. Like ChatGPT, I still remember somebody asked it uh, if, you know, my age is five and my sister is seven. Or no, what was it? It was three and six. So it's three and six. So the sister's twice as old, right, at this point. When we're 70, how old is my sister? And it did something like 70 divide two, it said like 35. It was just way wrong. And you'll see little things like that with, with math. That's why you have code interpreter within chat GPT, because then it can write Python to be doing the math. So like when these people are training their, the, the, the tools for FPNA, what they're doing is they're being very careful on what they allow the AI to return. They don't want it to give any numbers on its own. It has to be all stuff it can pull straight from the data. And that's where a little bit of that challenge comes in to give some of those answers because it's not doing any math. Most of them aren't doing math calculation on their own. Now, I think when we see code interpreter, you'll see more of that. I think where you'll see some real benefits, and I think you're seeing it now, is one, Excel, writing formulas. Very helpful. Telling you what kind of chart you should build because it has all the data of best practice. So stick some data, dummy data in it that matches your data. Don't ever give it your data and ask it to tell you what you should use for a graph. It's usually gonna give you some of the best tools to use. Um, you wanna analyze like a public stock, let's say their, their quarterly earnings. Take this transcript, look for certain words, put it in chat GPT, right? So if you wanna see if it's positive or negative, ask you to give you the gen gentle sentiment of it and some quotes so you can get an idea, are they being positive about the future or negative? Um, load the financials and ask it using code interpreter, not the language learning model, but code interpreter to calculate some of the ratios. It can do mm. that. So there's areas it can be really helpful, but language learning models, especially ChatGPT, which is a general, that's accounting and finance are not going to be its strength. And so you're seeing ones being trained specifically on finance data. And so it's mm. going to take time. We'll get, I think we'll get a lot better. But there are some, there are definitely some limitations still, no question. All right, you've you've outdone me. <laughs> I'll go back to the lab and, and try to get some value out of it because 
right now, Paul, I'm I'm the old guy yelling, get off my lawn, like with this whole AI thing. I just haven't seen it yet within finance. So what we're going to do here is we're going to move into what we call our long ass lightning round. I'm going to put you on the spot with a couple of, uh, a couple of zingers here. So can you give me an example of something you've ever messed up at work? Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> hey, man. No, I'll give you. So when I work, one of my first, uh, rules I had out of MBA school, we were calculating these rewards program and we had this whole new method they wanted us to use. So I built the access database to do it all, sent out the list of rewards. And then I was looking at it one day and realized I had screwed up one of the sorts and I gave them the list of the worst performers. And they had already <laughs> paid out like $20,000 to all the worst performers. Wait, wait, just drill into that. So they, they paid out the, the people Yeah, they paid out the money. <laughs> so they paid all the people who did the worst on the promotion because they were at the top of the list and all the ones who were supposed to win were at the bottom. And so I had to ad- admit that I screwed that up. And then we had to spend you know, our own money because we used the, the vendor's money to pay. They, ha- they put a budget in. It was for marketing. And so we had to use our money to go ahead and actually pay the right people and had to go through a big old process to make sure it didn't happen again with our, you know, our audit team. So that was fun. That's great. But you recovered because flash forward about five years, you're, you're calculating and paying out the commissions at multi-billion dollar companies. So you recovered. So there you go. I've done okay. Although I've, I've messed up a few of those too, but that's another story. Who hasn't? But just, you know, move on. <laughs> yeah. I'll, yeah. If you're doing commissions in Excel and you haven't messed them up, you're, you're lying. You're totally lying. <laughs> you're That's totally all there is lying. to it. <laughs> That's a plug for like whatever commission tool wants to sponsor this podcast. Give me a shout. <laughs> what If you could go back and tell your younger self something, knowing what you know today, what would you tell them? I would have said buy Apple. <laughs> 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 or crypto. I can think of a few things. I would have gave some investment tips yeah, primarily. Buy- Buy Bitcoin in 08, but dump it by 2020. Okay. Um, If you were designing a finance tool stack as a CFO, what are some tools that you would look to to buy today, knowing what you know about the ecosystem? You know, it depends on the size of the company. Let's just say I'm a startup. Yeah. I'm going to use QuickBooks or Xero as my accounting tool. I'm probably going to use, I mean, depending on where I'm located, but probably something like HubSpot or Pipedrive, which tend to be your startup for your CRM. I'm probably going to use a spreadsheet. I might actually consider equals. I like some of the things they're doing. I think they work well for a small company to start because they can kind of be a little bit of an FP&A tool. Um, you know, as far as the data analytics, if I'm a Microsoft shop, I'm going to use Power BI, no question. If not, it depends. I probably would still lean toward Power BI, but there are some other tools out there I might use just depending on cost. And what would your stack look like? I'll just throw it out there. 250 people, 100 million in revenue. It's going to depend on industry. So it's it's hard to answer, but you know, probably Sage or NetSuite is the ERP, I would think. Um, I'm going to have a planning tool. I probably would have some kind of headcount tool separate from my planning tool. Really? Something. Okay. Yeah, because there's some there's some ones that do a really good job of integrating across the entire company. So they really help HR and the managers, and they're not that expensive. It's so like a Team Ohana, a Doublefin, a Trace, something like that, I think is really good. And that would probably integrate with the you know, planning tool. As far as the planning tool, 100 million, you're getting up there pretty big in size. I'm, uh, 
there's a number of different tools I, I could list. So I'm not going to say this is the one I would choose. It would depend on my team and the company. But, you know, some I like when you get into, let's see, 250 employees, though. It's going to depend on the industry. There's a few. I mean, Veretto, Abacom, you know, I could go on and on. You can look at my third generation guide to see, you know, a number of tools. So that would be a hard one. But those are some of the things. BI, I would probably want Power BI. Last question I got for you. You've been in the FPNA trenches for years upon years before breaking out as a, as a media titan. What was the craziest thing you ever saw somebody try to expense? It's a good one. I'm, I'm going to go with something else, the craziest thing I saw. It's not expense, but I think Hit you'll uh, get a kick out of it. So I was asked one time that I was told we need to clean up our headcount for the last two years. This is a company that operated as a portfolio company. It had, it had done 50-something acquisitions over the prior 10 years. And headcount was a mess. And I was told for the entire U.S., I needed to, for the last 24 months, get the headcount right for every single entity, every single cost center. And I couldn't rely on the HR data. And I couldn't rely on the finance data. I was supposed to talk to every single hiring manager and make sure it was right. And we were a company that had extremely high turnover. And I remember I went to my CFO and the guy who asked me to do this was on his way out. He was given a project to fix it. And so that's how he decided to do it. And I told my CFO, there's only one thing I can guarantee you. It will not be right. <laughs> so that was the craziest one, not, not expense, but craziest ask I've ever had in finance. I'm just like, you do realize this is not going to be right. And if you're in finance and you know, like going backwards historically, trying to trying to figure out what headcount was before your time, it's it's a fool's errand. I've tried multiple times. <laughs> Paul, it's been a pleasure. Where can people find you? Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, the FPNA guy, and then I have two podcasts. I have one called FPNA Today, all the major platforms, as well as the Financial Modelers Corner. And so those are the, probably the best places to find me. And then, you know, you can always hit CJ up. He knows where to find me. I'm a, I'm a big fan of your content, Paul. It's been a pleasure getting to jam out with you, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, CJ. Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.